0: It's not so much where you've been as where you're going And how you make the most of every stop along the way It's not so much what you own as how you know when And how you make the most of the people in your everyday all oh, the places you'll go and the places you'll be people you'll know, and the people you'll see All oh, the places you'll go, and the places you'll be All oh, the people you'll know, and the people you'll see I'm Heather McLeod, and this is the Places You'll Go edition of Something Different This Way Comes. Something different, this way comes something, something different, something different, something different. This way comes something, something different, something different. different. I saw a familiar
1: face at the Electric Vehicle Community Show. It It was the second show I've heard of in town, the first I've gone to. It was held at the CLE inside because, you know, electric, no toxic fumes, no roaring engines. Actually, I saw a few familiar faces there, but only one that I asked to record a conversation with me about electric vehicles because I think Paul Berger is as little into cars as such as I am. I am the person who may very well need to resort to clicking my automatic lock in a parking lot in order to identify which vehicle is mine when it flashes its lights and beeps at me. And I'm saying this. This does not just happen with a recently acquired vehicle or a rented one or something. I, I have resorted to this regularly with cars I drive. Every day, four years at a time. I'm nerdy about a lot of things. Cars is not one of them. Yet, I took a few precious hours out of a Saturday to go to the electric vehicle car show. And one of the reasons I went was because this show is a community show, owners, not out to sell anyone anything showing up to share their experience as Thunder Bears who own electric vehicles, some of them for years, many winters' experience, right there answering questions, letting you sit behind the wheel if you want. They had info sheets on their windshields that shared details like how much they paid, the mileage promised in the promo when they bought the car, the mileage they actually experienced living and using it in Thunder Bay, how much electricity they had to pay for to charge these vehicles, Um, how much the cold they had experienced impacting performance in the winter as Thunder Bay drivers. And I like information without a sales motivation. Anyway, among the cars and their owners, I spotted Paul Berger and invited him to be a guest on this episode because I think the reasons he was at that show with his new electric vehicle are well aligned with the reasons I was at that show trying to learn what I need to know in order to stop driving a fossil fuel-burning-combustion-engine vehicle as soon as I can manage. Now, there's a lot more related to climate action I could talk to Paul Berger about beyond his car. He's a passionate activist and educator who thinks a lot about what good looks like and does a lot to help change things. He's an assistant professor at Lakehead University in the Department of Education. That's where I caught up with him one lunch hour for this conversation. He's an active member of many activist organizations, from Diversity Thunder Bay to Poverty Free Thunder Bay and Citizens for a Sustainable Planet. i have gotten to know him a bit because we both sit together on the Citizens Advisory Council for the City on Climate Action for a few years now. In other words, I could talk to Paul Berger about many things for a long time. Starting with a collection of books behind his desk that caught my eye as soon as I stepped into his office and makes my own bookshelf of hope look Modest in comparison, but I had only asked for half an hour of his time, so I had to focus. And I promised myself, I can always ask him back for another episode. So I started by asking Paul Berger what motivated him to buy his new electric vehicle.
2: The uh, move to an electric vehicle was 100% because I'm really tired of uh, putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Also really incensed by the fossil fuel companies and their climate denial So I had a perfectly good functioning five-year-old Toyota Prius that we really liked, that served all our purposes, that had a custom-built roof rack and everything, but um, the possibility of moving away from fossil fuels and being able to drive without feeling like I'm burning gas every time I drive was an incredible incentive for me and was ultimately, I thought, worth the extra cost of, of buying an EV now compared to two or three or four years from now when when it's just going to be the logical choice uh, for everybody.
1: Yeah, all I care about is that it doesn't actually burn fossil fuel. And there's only so many options out there that you can clearly say, okay, I'm flipping this switch, at least here. I'm not feeding into the fossil fuel dependency of our culture. And it's still got to be built. So it's not like it's completely pure, but it's a great step forward. So um, I want to imagine doing it because I'm like I'm the person driving a car to go back to cars who wants to know as soon as I make a turn. Whether I'm turning left or right next and and how long, if it's 100 kilometers, I still want to know the minute I make the turn because I'm just not comfortable until that moment. So if you can walk me through, start with the Prius. What was it like owning that? And then we'll take it from there.
2: The Prius was, we had ordered a Volkswagen Passat diesel. Because I'd done a bunch of research and it looked like it got virtually the same fuel economy. I didn't realize that uh, diesel is a bit more carbon dense. So even if it uses the same number of litres per 100 kilometres, it actually puts more carbon into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I had a resistance to being the you know environmentalist guy that has drives around in a Prius for some reason. But a month before we were picking up the uh, Volkswagen Passat, the, the emissions scandal broke and we emailed and canceled the order and bought the prius and you know it was great because it it took our fuel consumption down maybe 40% consistently it used 5 liters per 100 kilometers which is pretty easy to then calculate how much fuel you're burning so it was better but it's like better is still not great right and and that was back in 2015 you know now a number of years later I'd read a book by uh, Christina Figueres and Tom, someone or or another. They were part of the Paris Agreement, negotiating the Paris Agreement. And they suggested that everybody should have their own carbon reduction plan, sort of not think about going from, you know, giving up everything and, and, and stop burning carbon all at once, because that's pretty impossible in this fossil fuel economy. But what decisions can you make? What things can you do so that by 2030, you've also reduced your own carbon footprint? And by 2050, you're also at uh, not emitting any more carbon. So that that was sort of in the back of my mind. And as as we saw electric vehicles appear on the streets in Thunder Bay, largely the Tesla group, you know, it seemed like it was something that was possible. And uh, I just sort of eased, eased into it. My first inquiries were, for for some local things, like I I found out that the Chevy Volt and the Bolt, you could get them in Winnipeg, but they couldn't service them here. I think that's probably changing now. They were they were going to get an, a mechanic uh, certified before COVID, then it got delayed, and they said, well, you know, we're going to get back on track with that. And I know now the Ford dealership. I didn't even realize that they had a an electric Mustang coming. It, it's 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 way too aggressive a car looking for me anyway I, I guess and the F-150 Lightning is here and I don't drive a pickup truck but basically I looked around and found uh, that the, the Hyundai Kona was available it, it had been made for a number of years electric and they had just begun being able to service it here in Thunder Bay and And that was important for me because it's the only car my partner and I have we can't have it go to Winnipeg for repairs if it needs repairs and apparently the EVs don't need repairs very frequently. We can't, you know, we can't be without it for a long time, because we're on on bikes when we're without the car. And we're about uh, 22 kilometers outside town.
1: Okay, there's a lot of great stuff in there. Like, very cool. All right. So first thing is a hybrid. The hybrid you moved to, because it was the best option available to you at the time, and you immediately realized part of your goal, which is burn less gas. But then when a new um, all-electric option came along, you're willing to trade up what was good for what was better. So this idea of saying, okay, I really want to burn less carbon. What can I do? When do I want to do it? What can I afford? I, that so resonates for me. Like, okay, that really helps me decide when I can make these changes and, and how to weigh them. I love that. And then I do want to go back a little bit to the idea of, of putting your ear to the ground to find out not just what something costs, but also maintenance, abilities, locally, that's huge. So how's that continued to shape your decisions as, as you go forward? Or what advice do you have for me?
2: Well, when we picked the car up, the guy gave me a card for the service department and said, you know, you eventually need these people, and but you probably won't need to do anything for at least a year. And it's like, whoa, okay. You know, I, I knew at that point that I don't need an oil change. There's no oil to change. Um, there's very little that goes wrong. Electric motors run 24 seven in, you know, pool pumps and all kinds of things there. It's an incre- incredibly uh, robust technology. So I'm expecting to have very low maintenance costs on the vehicle. I do need to get winter tires soon. Um, but in terms of, I wanna go back to the budgeting part there. The high sticker price is a big deterrent for people. It's it. I think the gas version of the car is $15,000 cheaper, something like that. So it's a definite premium. And I've seen the research now that looks at the cost of the gas car and the electric car, even with that higher sticker price, but with the cost to fuel it with gas or electricity. And it comes out pretty clearly that over the life of the car you're ahead with electric. Now, one thing I'm not sure about though in those calculations is, have they taken the time cost of money into account? If you have to borrow that extra 15,000 and you're paying X amount of interest on it, does that change the calculation? But I, I certainly understand the people's hesitation to finance a car that's more expensive. But between ordering the car in November and picking it up in June, the price of gas actually went from about a dollar forty to you know a dollar eighty and and then briefly over two dollars and it's about a dollar ninety six now in Thunder Bay, that actually changed the calculation even more. So it it made it seem like a great decision for me, like time was right. And when we bought the Prius, you could get the Nissan Leaf, but the range wasn't great. And for a family that has only one vehicle, it just didn't seem like we could do it. You know, you have to think about that too, because there would have been greater sacrifice if we'd done that at that time. Now, the only sacrifice I see with the Kona that we've got, so far, we've only charged it on 120 volts at our house.
1: Wow, that's just like a regular plug.
2: A regular plug-in and we will probably put in a level 2 charger so that'll cost a thousand dollars or something to be able to do it faster in case we're going for a long drive on a winter day and then need to go for a long drive the day after and it'll be a convenience thing and we go out and the car's warm in the morning it's been heated off the grid which is super awesome the only sacrifice i can see really with the vehicle is if i go to southern ontario to see my mom In the Prius, I could get gas once in Sault Ste. Marie, get 36 liters, that's it, and be down in Southern Ontario. And that's just a five minute stop at the gas pump. This one will probably need to charge it three times and each time for 45 minutes or so. And my partner thinks that's great because she doesn't wanna sit in the car for hours and hours at a time anyway. And for me, if I'm alone, I'll do the drive in a single day and then that's gonna be harder but for me you know how many times do we go to southern ontario that's such a, a tiny little sacrifice for me for the joy i have now in in driving around figuring i'm not uh, not burning gas to get from here to there and if somebody invites me over for dinner i'm not thinking okay i have to drive into town that's burning gas
1: the other big cost thing that's hard to wrap your head around is how much you save when you're not tied to that gas pump and you're not tied to those maintenance requirements like you said, like gas went up so much. But I know in Australia, um, there was this trend of of people putting solar on their house because one person would do it and almost be surprised and really happy to tell everybody about how lovely it was not to pay for your electricity anymore. Like just, it just was great being independent of the grid, Uh, and then the next thing they did was, well, hey, I don't want to pay for gas either, right? And they got electric cars because they could power that too independently without paying anybody else, they're generating their own power. And without it being like a campaign or any other incentives going on, uh, it just caught on trend-wise neighborhood to neighborhood across Australia. So that whole idea of, of how much we save and these obligations we take on when we gain an asset like a car, I think that could really switch minds, too, about budgeting and, and, and life being more affordable.
2: That's a really great point. And what we're actually seeing is that the changes that are being made already, the transformations, like you're saying, rooftop solar in places in Australia, the power generated from the rooftop solar over the length of uh, you know the lifespan of the solar panels is cheaper than you can get it delivered by the grid. So even if it was free to generate power and you were only paying for delivery, the power on, on their roofs is is actually cheaper. So life is getting better, actually. As you say, people are more independent. They're less at risk of having power outages because they have their own supply. It's cheaper for them. And I, I've experienced the same thing driving the electric car. And as you pointed out at the beginning, I'm not a car nerd. I don't care that much about spiffy cars, but I'm driving around smiling Feeling like I'm in a, f- a future thing, like it's a future thing that that feels better. And a couple of times uh, last last week, I had to tromp on the accelerator because you know I turned out from from Squire Street there, turned left onto Memorial, which is always a hard turn. It's out from near the Sleeping Giant Brewery there, and there was a car coming, so I I really stepped on it, and the acceleration it 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 automatically switched from eco mode to sport mode, and the thing took off like a rocket. So. Again, the, the world we can have if we make the, the, the transition uh, is, is a great world and, and the co-benefits of almost all of the different transitions we need, whether it's changing the gas stove in your house out for electric or for an induction range, the gas furnace, the car eating more plant-based diet, more active transit in the city, all of those have these co-benefits that in a way we should want to do them even if there is nothing called climate change and i think that's you know you say that the the person puts solar panels on their roof and then they talk to their neighbors and then the solar panels appear on the neighbor's roofs that's the biggest predictor of where solar panels will go up is if there's a neighbor that has them and the number of people that have stopped and talked to me about the ev just at the end of my driveway is pretty incredible people are interested and once they know somebody's doing it like i knew that the tesla folks were doing it it makes it possible for you to think oh Maybe I could do it too. And I'm just so excited and happy about it, even though I'm not a car person, that, uh, you know, I drove in here today to work and I wasn't burning carbon on the way in. And that just, I just love that.
1: The theme of this season for me is what good looks like. I really want to find people willing to imagine different ways of doing things that we'd welcome. If we're just imagining and we could just, make whatever we wanted in this neighborhood, the thing I would love is not having to drive as much. I mean, I'd love that. And I did live in other cities most of my adult life before moving here 20 years ago, and never much drove. I lived in cities that had much like Montreal. Everything's a jowl. Not everybody has a yard. And, and neighbourhoods have a lot more services and businesses than most of Thunder Bay's neighbourhoods do currently. And therefore, the bus makes sense, and that's what we did. And so did biking, got me more places more quickly. Ditto in Toronto, more yards in Toronto, but it was still built around neighbourhoods with a density that we don't currently have in Thunder Bay. So... You'd think since I live like you, outside town, bit of a commute to get in, surrounded by trees. I wouldn't care about what happens in town, but I do. That's my beginning part is I want us to, because they have changed the zoning laws to make it easier for there to be businesses. The opportunity there, but what can we do to just really push it and encourage it and, and have every neighborhood feel more like a neighborhood you can walk in and not have to leave necessarily at all?
2: I, I think the the zoning changes, and as much as I've understood them, which are going to encourage infill, that's a really good start. The councils will have to also not approve big new developments, sprawling ones that we know end up raising property taxes because it's just a whole bunch more infrastructure to to service. You know, the vibrancy of neighborhoods is going to come, I think, from that infill and from people reclaiming spaces. And I think there's some pretty good examples in Thunder Bay of of people doing things in in small scales some years ago there was a strong towns guy that came but somebody of the city sponsored and probably paid a fair bit of money to to bring him in i think it was at the italian cultural center his whole point was uh, infill don't sprawl out and give little pots of money little little incentives to to fund things that citizens think would be a good idea and i that stuck with me because you know, for $10,000, you might have something that maybe it fizzles and it doesn't go well. Okay, that's like a, not even a rounding error on the city budget. But you might have something that really builds pride in the community or or creates something that then blossoms and, and gets a lot bigger and lasts. The other thing I'm thinking about is there's a book behind me that I think it's uh, from, from what is to what if. Uh, he's done transition town stuff, trying to get people to think about how spaces could be used differently, and we get really fixated on the way things are. People get stuck on what what exists instead of what there could be and I think that's really really too bad we We see movements of people pushing to do things that that make things better, and one of the things that I'm totally kind of stunned by is... Many years ago now, I was at a city council deputation. I wasn't giving the deputation, but it was people who want the memorial link built. So a a raised bike lane connection between the two centres, Fort William and and Port Arthur, right down Memorial Avenue. They did a fantastic job. They had all kinds of signatures. Lots of people were car drivers that when they heard about the idea, they were like, oh, no way. And then they realised that it would get bikes off the road to their own space. And then they were supportive. City Council seemed to be quite supportive, and we still don't have the memorial link down Memorial Avenue. The most powerful answer he gave was somebody said, well, is there any downside to this? And he said, no, this is not a project for cyclists. This is a project for the people who will become cyclists. And I think anybody listening knows that there's a hardy core of people that bike in town. My partner's one of them, she bikes all the time. She also has often stories about close calls, people that turned left and didn't see her or whatever. If we had raised bike lanes the way you know, many cities have, there would be a zillion people biking. It would be good for commerce. It would be good for exercise, it would be good for health. It would be good for carbon reduction. If we had a much more actively accessible city, it would also make the neighborhoods more vibrant. And if we combine that with really good public transit, You know, lots of people wouldn't need the second car or even a a single car. There's lots of young people that don't want to have a car, but they need to be able to get around. And it's a bit clunky in Thunder Bay the way it is right now.
1: So I was thinking of two things in my little imaginarium of my head, because I live out of town right now. Something where somebody would find all of us on my road, for instance, that head to town at more or less the same time and just get us there and get us home without us each having to drive our own vehicle. And then if I do get to town, instead of having to drive us all off and drop us off at all of our places, if there was like a hub where we all come in, all of those – there's like five places that are entry places where that car could drop me off and I could get onto a great – transit system that frequently got me pretty much directly where I want to go if you build it they will come I think like why wouldn't you save on that overhead and and have that social opportunity too of people that you car ride with and people you see on the bus and getting to spend that extra time with your kid instead of them getting on a bus way early in the morning and not getting off again till way later than I think is reasonable in the evening so that that's my first dream is if we really built. We talked to everybody and said, you know, I know you don't do it now. Why not? What do we need to build in order to get us out of our cars? And then once we're driving less cars, then how many places can we turn into gathering places? Once I'm in town and if I didn't have a car, then where am I going to eat? It's going to be closer. Somewhere I can walk to. Maybe there'll be bikes at my office that I can bike to a nearby hub. Kind of rental bikes I see in so many other places. I mean, as soon as you open up the possibilities, it's just so much more lovely a day. Really, a little bit of outdoor time, a little bit of social time. Those are kind of some of the ways I imagine us daring to transform this city.
2: It would pull some people out of their cars. I think by 2050, we should have a city where public transit is the easiest, fastest, most comfortable, best way to get around. But why wait to 2050? Why not move it up a lot closer? Like we, we know things will be vastly different. Why not take some of those future things that we know are coming and, and try to move to them quicker? We can do this. We're not a a place that is economically super depressed at this point. And I know that people don't like the idea of of spending money on things. But if they get value for the money, they can see the changes. If they have leaders selling them the changes, you know, in inspiring ways, telling them what it's going to do for the city. I think that makes a difference. We, you know, we would attract professionals to Thunder Bay if we were the first city in in Canada to have fair free public transit. Because we'd be on the map and it would be a cool thing. If we become the 25th city to do it, because we've seen that it works in 24 other cities, it's not its not gonna have quite the same appeal, but we could be leading on this.
1: And, you know, full disclosure, I got to be part of a presentation to council on this, which part of what got me so excited is it was an opportunity to listen to all that research and, and imagine what good looks like. And it was so inspiring, it, it can be hard to think, well, why hasn't it happened already? Because we can see it so clearly, I can in my mind's eye. But another thing you touched on there is, is the people that pay for it, the taxes we're talking about, are people that own homes, right, which is not everybody. And what has happened, here I am again talking about money, is um, after the Second World War, Canada became a country that decided to raise wages to mitigate the cost of home ownership so every man could raise their family and own their home and have a yard, Right, So we have this sprawl that's seeded in all of that, and we did not maintain those wages right Now you need two wages to maybe rent an apartment in one of those houses, but a lot of people have gone on to own those homes that can't really afford them anymore as the cost of things have gone up, even paying a thousand dollars or hundred bucks a month in property taxes, the thought of another twenty bucks is like, where will it come from so the other side of my thought was that to me is a lot of um of sorrow that could be made into opportunity like the person who's stuck at home feeling like they can't use the upstairs and they can't really take care of the yard the way they want and and the only place they can move to to get the care they need would not give them any kind of autonomy and independence and and really citizenship that you have as a homeowner so they're loath to leave what if we could have programs for them that allowed them to somehow share that space so something was built in the back something was built in the front something was repaired in the bottom something was added to another area they're not using that densifies the neighborhood but allows them to maintain the autonomy and the citizenship and, and the ownership. And then if we can get neighbors together to say, well, we really need, what do we need? Do we need a barber shop. Do we need a coffee shop? Do we need a youth center? Do we need, what do we need? And, and what do we have? And then have that door open to it be something owned by someone privately that we as a community want to help them transform into something that works for them and for that neighborhood. I, I just feel like a, a, a service that would help people go through the minefield of relationships and contracts and equity and income that that entails would actually be an incredible return on investment if we could just pull neighbors together and, and unlock the possibility in those empty lawns and those half empty underserviced homes.
2: I haven't read it, but I think from, from some of the question and answer sessions I've listened to with the candidates, that the possibility of actually building something in the backyard for a relative or dividing your house might have come along with this uh, latest zoning changes which would be really really good and I, w- I want to really acknowledge that property tax is a very bad way in many ways to raise revenue because it does trap some people uh, it would be much better and I, I sit on a, a coalition keep transit moving coalition that's across Canada trying to push the federal government to fund transit systems more so that we could reduce fares. I think that's really important. And the, the federal government has said that public transit is a priority and put money aside for it, but that hasn't filtered down in a way that that's, that's useful yet. But I do want to say one other thing about that kind of expense, and that is that if you raised if property taxes two hundred and twenty-five dollars or something, you could you could have no fares for anybody and a better system. And if if you could go without one of your vehicles because your kids could get to their practices on this great public transit, you'd save you know something like uh, twenty or thirty times that much. The ownership of cars is expensive, so it would really be great for most people. But I also heard something really interesting. A framing it might have been George Monbiot or somebody saying. We don't have an affordability crisis right now. In fact, we have an inequality crisis because I, I keep hearing about how you know, stressed people are and how inflation is so difficult. And for people, middle upper middle class people, double wage earners, yeah, groceries are more expensive. Yeah, gas has gone up a lot in price and other uh, heating fuels, but it's not a crisis. For people on lower and fixed incomes, it's a crisis. We have an inequality crisis, not an affordability crisis. In in fact, energy should cost more. If it's carbon intensive, it should cost more because we should be using less of it. And we pay way too little for food, right? We pay so little for food because people are really being exploited in different parts of the world to make the food for us. And we're using all kinds of chemical fertilizers and things that we need to change the agricultural systems and we need to accept that we're gonna need to pay some more for food but we need to redistribute some income so that the, the super rich are not as super rich anymore. We know that that inequality gap is, has grown really significantly in the last uh, decades. So there's lots of stuff we need to do. It's, it's, clearly it's all connected, but that shouldn't stop us from, from getting started and from doing some of the things that we know will make the, the city better.
1: I think on two fronts. I think about you know, when a community is devastated, like the flooding we had here in 2012, like the hurricanes hitting the coasts this month. A community is devastated and all these things that we could never let go of, we could never change. I've always had that this house I got from my grandfather, it overlooks the ocean, this neighbourhood is whatever, are gone. So if we can be honest with ourselves and revisit what we really, really need, what does it look like in a crisis? We need one another. We need to share shelter, we need to share food, we need to share medicine. Everybody needs it. There's no have-and-have-nots in these essentials. It should be something we all share. And it's been interesting how many places are talking like, like it's a revelation, but most cultures have shared these things all over the world, all the ways human beings do things. Food, shelter, medicine, education, those are not privileges. They are shared essentials that the community makes sure everybody has before you get on wealth. Wealth is the beyond the basics. It shouldn't be wealthy to be able to have a roof over your head. Like, it's crazy. So this whole idea of a basic income, to me, has got to be matched with uh, a basic expansion of what we think essential is. And I think we'll have to be creative in bridging it, because we've gone pretty far down the, the road of saying that a house is an asset, that a house is a wealth, that if you own the house, That's a big part of of your independence and your financial security. Um, But I do think it's time we just stop pretending it's not this elephant in the room, that food, shelter, medicine, education, that's the beginning. That's the ground line. That shouldn't be something people fail to achieve. Uh,
2: Absolutely. We we need to move towards a world of uh, public luxury and private sufficiency where we see Many, many more things, I think, as common goods, health care, I think internet access probably should be public communication is pretty basically needed right now. But one of the things I thought of when you mentioned the hurricanes hitting was that immediately our federal government appealed to Canadians to donate money to help repair from hurricane uh, or post-tropical storm Fiona, and that they would match the donations dollar for dollar. And that coming together to help each other in times of crisis, even when they're far, far away, is a pretty human thing. But a colleague of mine said, I just got really angry because it should be the big oil companies that are sending the money to help rebuild, right? It's, you know, we've had this massive fossil fuel lobby delaying climate action for three decades at least now. And we're seeing now, we're not seeing predictions of what's going to happen. We're seeing what's actually happening from it. At just 1.1 degrees of warming, we know what, you know, more and more is coming. Pakistan is a third of the country was flooded this year. I think the floodwaters are receding, but the waterborne diseases and the destruction and chaos, they're living it right now. They need reparations from the wealthy countries that keep burning fossil fuels like there's no tomorrow, sort of ensuring that there might not be any tomorrow for lots of people. Let's really rethink the way society is and we're going to need to start with with things that we can actually do and maybe start small, but with big ideas. I think we need to create the communities that do give us what we need and the happiness research is clear on that. Connectedness with other people is needed. Learning, the ability to be active and giving. Those are four things that happiness research tells us make people happy. We don't need more and more Vacations and bigger and bigger houses and vehicles. And as you've noted, like this pillar that we once thought was something that people needed to have a house, young people, they look at the market and they just think, I'll be renting forever. We're heading for financial collapses that probably parallel ecological collapses that we're we're starting to live through. And people actually know that, they sense it, they know we can't grow like we have forever and that we're going to hit breaking points that come sooner or later, we need to be ready to pick up and have good ideas to rebuild things when, when some of those big systems uh, hiccup and, and ultimately fail.
1: Or if we build for refugees, if we say, well, right now we're okay and we have spaces to fill, if we build places for those whose homes are not sustainable already, what will we also then decide about the spaces here that we know are not sustainable that flood, that fire, that whatever. Are we are we going to invest in infrastructure that makes them safer, that everybody gets to benefit from, that happens to own that land? Are we going to move everybody to our own new spaces that will get us through this crazy time? If you think proactively, maybe you can mitigate the disaster and give people permission to say, yeah, you know what, I have loved this place. This place has so much history and culture and, and things that we need to take care of, but let me pack it all up while I can and move where I'm safe and invest in the community that will see me through this time instead of just hunkering down and, and you know see no evil, hear no evil, it doesn't work.
2: Yeah, and those are catastrophic and really hard decisions that I think we collectively should be willing to support people in. So when people have been sold lots on floodplains that have been approved by city council to anywhere in the world, or they are living right on the seashore in port basque in Newfoundland, and they can see that it's not going to be viable to stay there, we need to collectively support them to make the decision to move. I think it's all of our responsibility, and I don't think Canadians would hesitate to support those people across the political spectrum. We have locked in some very bad outcomes already, and we do need to adapt. We need to move towards mitigating the damage as well. But at the same time, I just wanna come back to the idea that we are we need to make changes because we don't wanna have a less worse future. We wanna have a radically better future. Mm-hmm. And some of the things we've talked about here, whether it's public transit or reducing inequality can lead us actually towards a radically better future. I can envision uh, in, in 2050 when I'm 85 years old, a place that doesn't feel nearly as tense. People aren't nervous about the economy and, and all kinds of other things. I know the road to get there is going to be somewhat rocky. Lots of things are going to change, but I think they'll be better and in some cases radically better. And that's, climate activists have to start talking about that so that people don't think that climate activism is recycling and driving less or or something. Uh, recycling is great and driving less is fine. That's not what the future looks like. The future looks If we can get through the bottleneck and we can reinvent some systems, it looks like a much more connected, cleaner, nicer place to live and to raise kids and to raise other people's kids. And I think that's really inspiring.
1: And when people react in a crisis, you see how good most of us are. There's just really few bad people out there. So just bring everybody in. You'll be okay.
2: We just desperately need leaders to help help with that right we we have leaders who bought a pipeline still approving big new oil and gas developments that just keeps sending the message that we don't have to change and it flies in the face of all the science canadians know it's not true for the most part but they're not being led they're not being inspired by anybody to say that we can get to this place we can look after each other we'll get there together we're gonna have a just transition act we're gonna make sure fossil fuel workers are not only looked after as they transition out of out of the jobs, but that they're keen on what they're moving towards. These things aren't impossible. It's an incredibly wealthy country, but we're just desperately lacking leadership across the political spectrum to inspire us. And in its absence, we need to be pushing from below and we do need change.
1: But I also think that faith in people is really powerful. So in my world, we try to help people recognize the gaps in care and find out which ones they care enough about to try to manage all by themselves. And it is so expensive and inefficient for each person individually to try to patch the darn boat we're all in together. An example is disability insurance, right? I think it's 48% of mortgages that are are lost, that people lose the house, is because of disability. But only 38% of Canadians have any kind of disability insurance. I can't fix that by patching it one person at a time to try and get their own coverage. But if we had a shared system that just gave you a basic income, no matter why you're not going to work, but there's this presumption that if people don't have to work, they won't, right? If they have sufficient income to meet their needs, we'll never have a worker again. I know that's not true. Anybody I've ever met who's they won't retire until they know what they're going to do that is useful to the world upon leaving the job that's paying them a salary. They are disabled and they can't wait to get back to work. They're so angry that they can't get healed that much faster. And they feel so insecure because if they're not a worker, who are they? Like I think people are hardwired to contribute to their community. So this underlying principle of disability insurance that you cannot earn as much on when you're off on disability as you did beforehand because then you'll never go back to work. Like what the heck's that supposed to mean? In fact, you're probably gonna have more expenses as you get better. And and what, you think that person got disabled so that they wouldn't have to work and they can manage to magically continue the disability because uh, they don't wanna go back to work? It's a false premise and they're all over the place. There are these premises that tell us we're actually at heart bad, duplicitous people. And if we, if we start kind of recognizing those and challenging those, I think it could have a, a really huge impact on what we think makes sense and what we're willing to risk.
2: That's great. I mean, we we know from the research on uh, more or less universal basic incomes, and even the little pilot project that happened here in Thunder Bay before it was canceled by the previous Ford government. That's that's not what happens. People actually access the labor market that weren't before when they suddenly have a, a basic income. So we we know that from from the research that that perception is untrue. So. Where is the perception coming from? I think we've been sold an individualistic, uh, we are greedy and egocentric kind of line for the last 50 years. And I think you're right. We have to really bust that open and challenge it. And I ask uh, my climate change education students a question most years about whether they think that egocentricity and greediness is the root of the climate problem because that's what human nature is, and then I get them to debate and make half of them debate for and half against. And of course, there's all kinds of examples that counteract that. And there are cultures uh, living in this territory. uh, We're on Anishinaabe land here, and I tend to do a land acknowledgement at the start of of whenever I speak and say if Anishinaabe laws, indigenous laws were being uh, enforced around the world, we wouldn't have a climate crisis, right? We'd be thinking seven generations into the future instead of you know, trying to think half a generation into the future, which our current climate policy is, we have structures that push us towards being individualistic and greedy and a huge advertising industry that helps with that. Other cultures have structures that helps people to be connected and altruistic and looking after each other. And that's the part of human nature that comes out. When we put that together with the happiness research in terms of what actually makes humans happy we can redesign this place so that there is more connection maybe there's going to be less stuff that gets used once and thrown away that's going to make things better as well Um, we do need to challenge these messages that are actually false like that if people had a, a guaranteed basic income they wouldn't ever do anything again that's that's there might be a tiny little percentage of people that that would be the case. So what? Most people, it would be an incredible boon, and it would. It's another thing that by twenty fifty, there's going to be a universal basic income, as people's jobs get replaced by technology. is one of the reasons why people think that there's going to have to be. So why wait till twenty fifty? Let's get the good ideas rolling now, and change the world now. And not wait until I'm eighty five. And I'm eighty.
0: It's just too late. Thank you, Paul. This has been really fun.
2: Thanks, Heather. Carry on.
0: It's not so much where you've been as where you're going and how you make the most of every stop along the way. It's not so much what you own as how you know it and how you make the most people in your everyday Oh the places you'll go and the places you'll be Oh the people you'll know and the people you'll see. Oh the places you'll go and the places you'll be Oh the people you'll know and the people you'll see the places a conversation can go. I mean, we started with his journey from combustion
1: to hybrid to electric and invested a good 15 minutes of our half hour in that starting place, but then we moved to how much cheaper these green solutions are to operate once you make the move from fossil to future, not just cheaper, but better, more connected, more secure, healthier, happier, just how good it feels when we move from knowing changes needed To accomplishing that change. I mean, public transit. Thunder Bay has such a great history in public transit, building buses and trains and streetcars that people ride in cities all over the world. We should be a showcase of that savvy, right here, where we have built for over a hundred years public transit vehicles. Paul and I got so fired up, so excited to see these good changes that are coming our way. And what I really found myself thinking about after this conversation was Paul talking about the signs of happiness, having four keys. The four things we really need for a good life are connections with other people, the opportunity to learn, the opportunity to be active, and the opportunity to give. We can do that. Why wait until I'm in my 80s in 2050? Let's get started now. Do all that we can. I can't wait. I think I'm going to feel like Paul feels in his new EV, knowing that he is not burning fossil fuels or profiting those fossil fuel companies who have successfully convinced us to put off change for the last 30 or 40 years of excessive carbon emissions. Every time we finally make one of those changes... uh, How good that will feel. So here's the song. I've given you snippets a few times that I wrote. For this Oh, The Places You'll Go edition. Thank you, Dr. Seuss. Of Something Different This Way Comes.
0: It's not so much where you've been as where you're going. How you make the moment of every stop along the way, it's not so much what you own as how you know it. Spaces, food and conversations Neighbors who know how the neighborhood should grow Neighborhoods welcome, neighborhoods hold Neighborhoods reap what neighborhoods sow It's not so much where you've been as where you're going And how you make the most of every stop along the way not so much what you own as how you know when and how you make the most of the people in your everyday, all oh, the places you'll go and the places you'll be, all oh, the people you'll know and the people you'll see, all oh, the places you'll go and the places you'll be the people you'll know and the people you'll people you'll people you'll see
1: Thank you to Paul Berger for that conversation. It was inspiring. If you enjoy this podcast, if you'd like to help me keep it going, Give it a good review. Recommend it. Follow it. Visit www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca for details on what's referenced in each edition. You can find a GoFundMe button on the front page to help contribute to my costs. Just the cost of a coffee every month. If you'd be glad to treat me to a cup, I'd be glad for the help. I detail the cost of producing this podcast, and thanks for every dollar received so far at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca You can sign up for my weekly newsletter, too.
0: Something different this way comes something Something different, something different Something different this way comes something Something different, something different